Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. There is a lot of discussion about the effects of the survivors of the Holocaust, and one set of these discussions has to do with the children of the people who are actually in the Holocaust. One of those people is Serena Torrance, and she has very graciously agreed to join us today to discuss what it was like as she grew up with parents who actually lived within the camps themselves. Serena, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. It's definitely a privilege to be speaking to everyone today. I do want to preface by saying that when you and I began discussing this interview, you thought it would be a very lovely, and I agree, a very lovely tribute to your parents. And so we use that as a foundation here because it's necessary to acknowledge what both your parents and countless other people went through. Thank you. When, when did you first begin to understand the nature of what your parents had been through? How old were you? How did it come to you? Tell us, basically tell us your story. Okay, I'll just give a little background. Sure. I was born in a DP camp called Gabersee, and it was in a town called Wasserburg, Germany, which was basically a spa town where people came to enjoy the spa. The DP camp I was born in was originally a mental sanitarium. It was called Dessert Krankenhaus. I was the first generation of babies born after liberation, so I was a star on the so-called campus. In the building we lived in, in Brooklyn, the entire building was survivors and relatives and aunts and uncles and cousins. Looking back on it to get an answer to the question, I started thinking about it. I'm like, I don't think they ever discussed it with us, so we knew what they experienced. Seeing our mothers and our aunts bearing tattoos on their arms wasn't anything unusual for us. Nothing that would send a red flag, oh, we need to ask about this. We didn't question it. We were children in the midst of a happy childhood. Our parents, when they spoke together, when they got together, and my aunts and uncles, it was always about pre-war and happier times. It sounded, when I first thought about it, like, that's so odd that, that I didn't have any memories. But so I checked with my cousins, who lived in the same building, who were in a DP camp also, the same DP camp, and to verify my memories. And they said, absolutely. They don't ever agree any dialogue between our aunts and uncles and survivors or any dialogue between them and us. We had to kind of leave it go. There was no education in the schools, no mandate curriculum. In fact, New York curriculum didn't on Holocaust studies didn't start till 1994. In the early 50s, there was nothing there. There were no movies, no books, no documentaries. There was no way to know an event like that had happened. I think my first exposure was reading the diary of Anne Frank. However, her words were disturbing. They did not depict my parents' war experience until they were interviewed for the Shoah Foundation. I don't recall any of my elementary teachers or any of my friends' parents being sensitive enough to start a dialogue regarding my parents' Holocaust. As an interviewer for the Shoah Foundation, we were not allowed to solicit survivor testimonies. The one thing we were able to use to get them to agree to a testimony was that they didn't have to tell their children their horrific experiences. We told them they could record the experience, the testimony. The children can watch it. By doing that, they didn't have to be face-to-face because it was sort of an unspoken agreement between survivors that they would never speak of it to the kinderlach, which was really important for them. But as I got older, I really didn't understand their events and their experiences until early adulthood when I was able to grasp it and read everything I could read, join 2G groups and movies, 
and start to accumulate the information that my parents weren't able to share with me. Your parents both had other families before they met, is that correct? Correct. My mother, she was the oldest of six children. Uh, her dad had passed previously. They lived in a town in Czechoslovakia called Melipinia, which was a town that bragged about having healing, healing waters. That's where my mother's story is. My dad grew up in a town called Kuzbanov, which was at the base of the Carpathian Mountains, did have another family. He'd been married once before, and his wife had tragically died early. And the custom in Europe was if there was a sister of the wife that wasn't married, then that was the person that got married next to my dad. He got married and had three children at the start of the war. And he lost them all in the camps? Correct, correct. Let me give you a little bio on my mother's experience. And, sure. And then you can see what went on with them. My mother's story is more chilling than my father's is. She was on one of the one of those horrific transports to Auschwitz, and she was part of the selection where my father was sent to a forced labor camp in Romania. He wasn't in a camp. This was around Passover time, and my mother was living in a larger town called Munkac. She had become a nanny for a family. But Passover was approaching, and her mother desperately needed her to return home to help get ready for the holidays. Not wanting to, my mother felt responsible, and she did go. The Germans started invading the small towns and shtetls around this time. It was calculated to happen to the end of Passover, so the Jews had no bread or provisions to take on their journey. Initially, they were taken to a ghetto in Munkat. I'm not quite sure how long they stayed there, but they were put on horrific transports to Auschwitz. When they got there, as was customary, selections were made, and her mother and siblings perished. But my mother, being very strong physically was chosen to live because she had the strength to be of use. She was fair, a redhead, and she didn't do well out in the sun. They had the women naked in the sun waiting to be numbered. They started with 1,000, and her number was 7586. So it took days and days. She was exposed to a, a very harsh sun and got a serious case of sunburn. And this is chilling for me to even say. Dr. Mengele saw her and sent her to the infirmary to be examined. If she was not to recover, she'd have to be exterminated. But Dr. Mengele had her in his radar and always called for the redhead to help him with harder work. Amazing that Mengele knew her name. She did slave labor in an ammunition factory with other women. When the Germans got wind that a liberation was coming, they started something called death marches where they emptied out the barracks and started the women marching through snow with rags on their feet or whatever they can they can manage to get. And they did this for days and days. My mother and a friend decided to escape off the march. A failed escape meant that it would be instant death. They were successful, and they hid in the forest inside a large tree. After weeks and weeks, a farmer finds them and tells them, girls, the war is over. Come out. So gingerly, they came out of their tree. My mother went to Budapest and graciously opened a soup kitchen. And one day, my father walked in, and the rest is history. From that meeting, they traveled to a DP camp, and they were there among old friends and family, 
and they were reunited with any living siblings. My father resided in a small town called Kuzminov. When the Germans came in, his family was transported to Auschwitz and lost their lives. There was a wife and three young children, two boys and a little girl. My dad was transported to a forced labor camp in Romania. Things were not as great there, but there were no extermination. After liberation, he traveled to Budapest with his brothers and met my mother. In the DP camp, they were married and lived in a shared room divided with a sheet. There was such a drive to meet and reconnect with partners. It was There was such hope for the for a new life, and as soon as they could, they started planning and, and showed their strength in what they can do, and there was a tremendous wedding boom. There were seven, eight weddings a day, and the wedding gown got passed from one bride to another, and there was a tremendous baby boom. Babies were born all over the place. They taught the, the residents or the survivors of the GP camp different skills, and my parents learned to become tailors. And from then on, we petitioned for sponsorship to come to America. What was it like, as much as you can discuss, obviously, for your parents to be literally, it happened over time, of course, but transported from where they were into the United States, the cultural changes, the sense of safety, getting established, that must have been an intriguing transformation for them. How much do you know about that? I was privy to some information about it. We had some family, some aunts and uncles in New Jersey, and they sponsored our journey to America. Sponsorship meant that they vowed to take care of you, but not financially. They would find you an apartment, a job, and then everyone would donate a piece of furniture. That's where we live. I was 18 months old when we came to America. My parents didn't really like living. It was in Camden, New Jersey. They didn't really like it there, and there were no other survivors there that they could, could bond with. So they decided to move to the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where there were survivors all over congregating together, walking on, on the streets, so happy to see each other. We stayed there for a while, and then we moved to Brooklyn, and I still nothing really dawned on me because the survivors all stayed together. If one person moved to an apartment building, everyone else followed. If one person bought a, a single home somewhere else, everyone else followed. They just stayed together. As a teen and wanting to be very cool and, and have my mom like everyone else's mom with manicures and playing mahjong. So as a teen, I wasn't embarrassed, but I knew there was a difference with the way my parents looked and the smells of our house and the language. They never spoke English, only when they absolutely needed. It was always Yiddish in our house. What I remember hearing a lot was American neighbors and employers and just people they met, they encountered a different kind of prejudice they had in Germany and in Poland. They were called greeners, which was short for greenhorns. And they were still talked about, pointed at, not embraced as new neighbors, new friends. By default, they just stayed together, and even to the very end, that's all they were, was one common family. As I was doing the Holocaust interviews, I found something really interesting, and that was when the survivors came over, they divided into two groups. The group that emotionally and mentally and even physically returned to the shtetl. They dressed like before war, they ate, they spoke. And then there was the other group that wanted to forget what went on and wanted to assimilate. And some of the people I interviewed even had their numbers removed to avoid the prejudice of the people that call them immigrants and greenhorns. There still was an undercurrent of prejudice here. You are growing up in a very different culture 
Was there a conflict? Did you feel a tension between where your world was taking you versus where your parents had been and maybe not changing enough to match your world? Was there that sort of separation or, or, or not? Absolutely, absolutely. My parents were parenting from 40 years ago, and my mother, when she was liberated, she was in her early 20s, and the older women to her had all perished and said that she had no role models to how to parent, how to teach a child to grow up in a world of maybe prejudice and embarrassment. So their most concern with a child that was a female was that we would not run off. First concern was to not run off and marry someone that wasn't Jewish. That was the cardinal sin. And they would have symbolically sat shiva for us and never spoke to us again. But my wanting to be independent and always being very independent, I didn't have the emancipation other, other children had. I couldn't leave the house to go to college. I couldn't leave the house to live on my own. I, I had to get married to get my independence. It it wasn't that way for my brother who was able to to be on his own and follow his own path. My mother, well, in, in Europe, the, the daughter was the caretaker. So so I, I believe they wanted me to be close to take care of them. And, and the men, the sons would treat it completely differently. So after you finally married and you had children, do your own children have a sense of the world from which you came and from, from which their grandparents came? Is there that transmission of the history or the sensitivities that they are but two generations away from Holocaust survivors? Well, my parents were very stoic and didn't show much affection and didn't know about stroking someone's emotions. And so they weren't hugs and kisses kind of grandparents. So. My children didn't know what to make of it. They were kind of uncomfortable being physically affectionate with my parents. But as I started telling them little snippets of what went on, the most important thing that I emphasized to them and that they still carry with them to this day is the strength they inherited and survival skills, how what miracles we are to even be alive. None of us should have been alive and having children sitting there and speaking to them. So I think their amazement was at the, at the good part of inheriting my parents' strength and commitment to their family. I believe there is not sufficient education and appropriate remembrances for what the Holocaust was all about. Your kids went to American schools. They grew up here. It must have been very interesting for them when they did have a class about the Holocaust to inside themselves say, yeah, my grandma and my grandpa were there. I just envision that as maybe it's my own projection, but a reality, a connection to what history said. That history is very real. It's not distant. It's not abstract. It came into their lives. Did they ever talk to you about that type of thing? They would say, oh, a survivor came to school today to share their experiences, and she might have had 10 or 15 minutes standing in front of a class or on a stage during an assembly. The curriculum mandated that they only needed to learn a small chapter, maybe a day or two on the Holocaust. And 1994 was even after my children graduated high school. So if they learned anything or were exposed to it, it's from teachers that were evolved and, and knew this had to be touched upon. But even to today, 
The most that I hear about happening with second generation and third generation is just visits to schools and some articles, some 2G, what second generations call themselves. We offer videos, recording videos of second generation life and facts, but there isn't that connection. In fact, I, I did a search to see what states and what, what their Holocaust curriculum was. And in some states, it wasn't part of it until 2014. I think it's something that's still taboo to talk about children from middle school and high school. I don't think they can wrap their heads around it. I don't know if, even if they saw the standard pictures of the little children rolling up their arms showing numbers or, or the emaciated survivors. If they were shown those horrific things, I don't think they were able to comprehend. My children had no photographs of my parents after the war and what they looked like. They had no photographs of what their grandparents would have looked like. There was like a disconnect in history and this was new to them. And they just wanted to be Americanized. They were teenagers. They, you know, there was, there was a mall to go to and games and just didn't fit into it. And it worries me because the survivors, metaphorically, I guess, handed us the baton for the next lap in this. And we haven't done very much. We haven't run fast with that baton and handed it over to our 3G groups. I, I don't see much outreach out there from groups. To me, it's just a benign kind of involvement by sending survivors out or having a book written about it. It's just it's not as popular as it was when Schindler's List came out. All of a sudden, there were other movies and other books and other documentaries. And people, it was sort of the, the history event du jour. This was what people were looking at. But when that passed, it, it doesn't exist anymore. There's, there's no dialogue about it. People just go on their way. Survivors, most of them have passed away. The, the window for interacting with them is gone. In the Shoah Foundation, we interviewed about 30,000 worldwide in survivors. And that was only 15% of the surviving population. Those stories are gone. The only stories we have from them are the testimonies, which the children can watch over and over again to get to know their parents and their grandparents. Those testimonies are at Yale University, at Yad Vashem, and at the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. Have you been back to Europe? Have you been back to what remains of the camps? Yes, definitely. My husband, Jamie, and I went on a specific trip to Germany because I desperately wanted to see the DP camp where I was born. One of the options on the tour company was visit the BMW factory or go to Dachau. So it was, it was very interesting of who, who made what choices. Dachau was one of the worst camps, and it was in the middle of a neighborhood with a four-foot wall around. It was impossible for people not to say, oh, we didn't know it was there. And they also had extermination ovens, so it had to have been knowledge that there was a camp there. The ovens that were there were sparkling clean and had the name Ben Dimmler, I think is the name, on there. And uniforms were just hung on the wall for the Red Cross to see how giving the the officers and the guards were. And it was a very clean experience. It was hard for me to even have any emotion about it or reflect anything because it was like going to a museum exhibit because there was nothing there was nothing about what happened. So that was that was Dachau. Where the barracks would have been, they had laid out railroad ties 
and filled each section with stones. And I bent down and picked up a whole handful of stones to bring to my family as, as something to inspire them for the background and everything. And my children, being teens at the time, were like, that's all you brought me was a stone? They just leased a t-shirt or something. So they were surprised by the emotions and the, and the meaning behind the stones. From there, we were able to get a private taxi driver to take us to the DP camp. I don't know why, but he was very nervous about it, and he said he'd only let us be there half an hour before he would come get us. The camp was deserted. I don't think it was used for anything for a long time, but it was magnificent. It had three or four-story buildings that were covered with ivy totally, and there was fields with wildflowers and trees all over the place, benches. And I, even though there was no one there, I kind of felt a lot of souls walking around. I was like, wow, the bench I'm sitting on, my mother and father might have been sitting on here. For me, it was a very life-confirming because it was the start of a new life for a lot of hurt and sad people who, in my opinion, were in a constant state of mourning. They were like sitting shiver 24-7. So to welcome new babies was an amazing thing. Amazing. So how would you, because it is very powerful and very intimate and very real, how do you now, who's grown up in the United States, who's seen prejudices and terrible things outside or subsequent to the Holocaust still occur, how do you psychologically manage the fact that humans can be so so harsh and hateful and indifferent to each other? Is, have, have you come to some sort of answer to that question? I haven't. I haven't. That's something that still puzzles me that people can be like that. In the last 10 years or so, I've decided to become a Buddhist. So now I'm a Buju or a Jugu. And the philosophy of being kind to people and doing deeds and, and being of service and, and not even hurting a fly is in direct conflict to all the, all the awful things I, I heard and saw. During our training for the Shoah Foundation, we had questions like, how, how were the Germans able to just kill a baby or exterminate people like that? And we were told that they were brainwashed to think that we weren't human. And it's very easy to, for a lot of people to step on a bug because thinking, well, it may not have feeling, it's not human, it's just easy enough to get rid of them. So that was the feeling I had. I've always tried to take back whatever positive things I've inherited from my parents. And I think with my mother, a lot of it was generosity of her, even after her exposure and her experiences that she went and opened a soup kitchen and started feeding people again. It made me believe that I, I've inherited her strength and her generosity. And my father, it's hard to say, with his losses, children losses, he was much more stoic. My mother's interview was over two hours, and my father's was about half an hour. So there's things they wanted to share and things they didn't want to share. I wish we had more time because there's so much involved here. You captured the themes. I just hope that people realize that what all happened to your family, it still is potentially part of the human experience and that we should never forget and we should always teach our children. At the conclusion of each interview that we did, we asked the survivor for one last statement they would like to make that mm-hmm. whoever watched their interview would see them, especially their children. And I did 70 interviews in the South Florida area, and I never encountered one survivor say anything revengeful or don't buy BMW, don't drink this coffee because of forced labor. 
All they said, and it was almost unanimously, love each other and don't let this happen again. Absolutely. Serena Torres, thank you. And I hope we didn't stir too many uncomfortable emotions in you, but I can guarantee you that you will stir emotions in other people and maybe we'll be a couple notches better. These are my family heirlooms that I carry with me. Some are sad, some are uplifting. All in all, I think I had a most amazing childhood, a close family. It was, these are things that happened before that need to be addressed, but I'm not confident that things will change. Personally for myself, these are heirloom stories that I treasure. Very nicely put. Serena Torres has given us a half hour of her time to discuss her life and her relationship to being 2G. 2G. Yes, second generation of Holocaust survivors. Thank you very much. And And it's been a privilege talking to you today. And it's been a joy listening. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.